Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. She was his second wife to die. Coming off a failed marriage, a beautiful woman named Tony joined an online dating site, hoping to find true and lasting love. Harold Henthorn seemed like her dream come true, a handsome man who said he had a heart for others. Only weeks after meeting, they were wed. But Tony's family began noticing Harold's dark side, especially his controlling nature, which Tony didn't seem to mind, until she met her end at the bottom of a ravine. Was he a grieving husband or a black widower? Harold's tearful story of his wife's hiking accident just didn't hold up with Tony's family or the police. 
Then a shocking truth was uncovered. Twenty years before, Harold's first wife had also died suspiciously in a remote area with no witnesses. Soon, more questions arose. Who was Harold Henthorn, a devoted, grief-stricken husband or a cold, calculating killer? Could authorities find a way to connect his wife's deaths and expose the truth? The book that we're featuring this evening is The Black Widower, a beautiful doctor, her seemingly perfect husband, and a chilling death. With my special guest, journalist and author Michael Fleeman. Welcome back to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Michael Fleeman. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Incredible story here, The Black Widower. Uh, as you do with this, let's just jump right into this story because we have a lot to cover, and it's an amazing, involved, heartbreaking, and interesting and fascinating story. So let's get right to Harold and Tony Henthorn, as you do in the beginning of your book. They're at Deer Mountain, and they're a middle-aged couple, and they've spent the night at this Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, celebrating their 12th anniversary. And this is September 29, 2012. Can you take it from there, what they did after this anniversary, and they set out what they were what he had planned or what they had planned together, what they were going to do as part of this 12th anniversary. Sure. This was a, a very romantic weekend that Harold had meticulously planned for his wife for their anniversary. He, in fact, had not even told her that they were going to go away that weekend, and he had he had uh, conspired with her coworkers to uh, to not tell them, and he showed up at her work and, and, and whisked her off to the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park. It's a gorgeous, big, historic uh, hotel in a beautiful, beautiful location in Colorado uh, in the Rocky Mountains. And uh, they spend the night. They wake up the next morning. Um, he had uh, made reservations uh, that night at a at a steakhouse for dinner for their anniversary dinner, and during the day he had made plans for them to take a hike up uh, Deer Mountain. And this is a, a trail that goes several miles um, up to uh, an overlook really on the on the edge of the Rocky Mountains where you can see for miles and miles in every direction. And uh, so before their, before their dinner, they were going to take a hike, and that's what they did. Now... Just for those people that are interested in hiking, and just to explain this as well, there is uh, ratings on the trail difficulty. Now, what was the trail difficulty at that time? And basically, overall, what was it considered what they were planning to do if followed the trail the way everyone would? Um, what was the difficulty? And so what was the risk of uh, on of anything happening likely in this during this hike? Well, this is not a, uh, a not a stroll in the park. Uh, the trail is rated moderate, which for some of us uh, who are over 50, uh, it, moderate can can seem very difficult. There were some uh, the trail, like I said, goes for several miles. It, it's steep. There's switchbacks. It goes over rocks. Um, you know, we're we're talking a very high altitude um, in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, it is fall, so you know if something goes wrong, the temperatures are going to drop to freezing overnight. So, 
you know, this is this is not uh, not an easy nature hike. Now you talk about the where they set out and you describe their venture and also that there's these well-worn paths. But tell us what they, as the day wears on, again, increasing the difficulty, increasing the risk is spending too much time out there, as you say, before temperatures drop and before they lose the sun. And so what do they do despite what what might people might uh, characterize as, as risky behavior? What did they do? Well, they went off the trail, um, which anybody who goes to a national park knows you're not supposed to do for good reason. They they veered off the trail um, and went down a, a very kind of steep, rocky incline. Uh, it's it's through um, uh, a bunch of trees, and it takes them to what looks like the edge of the earth to a to a cliff with uh, hundreds of feet uh, uh, drop below. Uh, it's, they called it a knob or a precipice or whatever you want to call it, but it's just a, a rocky outcropping, um, which has a spectacular view, but it took them, you know, a mile or so off the beaten path, away from the trail that, that the rangers want you to stay on. At some point you put that they, they're using cameras and they're taking photos, and, and Tony, which is 50 years old, was taking a photo as we record we find out later everything's recorded these days digitally so let's talk about what the next thing that happens and what Harold Henhorn's response is sure so the whole the whole morning we know exactly what they did because they took pictures they took pictures in the car on their phone and on her camera they took pictures on the hike it looks like somebody else might have even snapped a picture of them um they look happy, and and uh, Tony uh, Tony always uh, uh, put on her makeup and did her hair, and you know even even for a grungy hike, she she wanted to look her best. So we know everything that went on, and while they're out on this rocky precipice, according to according to Harold, uh, uh, they're looking for wildlife, um, and. Uh, you know he's he's taking a picture of uh, a Tony. Uh, he says he gets a, a text message from. Uh, they have a, a young daughter and got a te- text message from the babysitter with an update on the daughter's uh, soccer game that day. Uh, and out of the corner of his eye, he sees a blur, and he looks up on this rocky outcropping, and Tony is gone. Now, what does he do right away, and what is his message to? 911 What happens? Well, next? he right away uh does not call 911. He does have his cell phone with him and he kind of looks out over the over the ledge, um thinks he sees Tony far below on the ground. Uh, she's wearing kind of a, a, a bright pink uh shirt, sweater, so she's easy to spot. And he shimmies and crawls and makes his way uh, down, down, down the mountain takes him about 40, 45 minutes to where um, he finds his wife um, uh, badly, badly injured from uh, a long fall, you know, 50, 100 feet, it looks like to him. Um, and that's when he calls 911 um, looking for help. 
Now, they ask him certain questions, and what is his response? They ask him questions like, are, do, you do, do you know how to do CPR? What's his response? And then what are the directions they give him and the back and forth between yeah. him and that operator? Well, he's, uh, he first gives them their, their location, um, and uh, he's talking to a, 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 like an emergency operator with the Park Service, and and he tells them their location, and, and he becomes uh, increasingly frustrated with the dispatcher because he wants them to send, you know, uh, uh, in a, one of those rescue helicopters to get them right away. And send the right. helicopter, I'll pay for it, you know. And, and uh, you know, he tells them his wife's not doing very well. And, you know, they said, we, we can't just land a helicopter there on the side of the mountain. Uh, this gets him annoyed. And and they they tell him, uh, look, you got to do... CPR on her, and and they transfer him to a, a police officer, Estes Park Police, who's going to lead him through CPR and kind of explains how do you do the chest compressions and breathing into the mouth. And the the police officer gives these instructions, and and after about oh thirty seconds, Harold says, yeah, yeah yeah I already did that. And she's well you know we need to do this, and he says no 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 I, I've already taken care of that. And so his behavior is somewhat odd. And uh, all this time, it's getting darker and colder, um, and a ranger has been dispatched to try to find them uh, and can't seem to find them. Uh, and so he doesn't seem to want to do CPR. He's becoming testy and irritable with the dispatcher for not sending the helicopter, and he's starting to get testy and irritable about why this ranger hasn't shown up. Does he make any other calls at that time as well? He does. Um, his wife's brother, uh, she has two brothers, one of them's a, a cardiologist, and he calls and texts, actually he calls and texts the cardiologist, and, you know, he's, he's giving uh, Tony's vital signs uh, and, uh, you know, telling him, kind of giving him an update on the health, and you know, the brother is looking at these vital signs and, it, you know, the pulse and respiration, and, and it's not making a lot of sense to him. Uh, the brother, of course, is, is extremely, extremely worried about what's going on with his uh, sister. And the he has, it, the suspicions arise, but he doesn't think anything of it. He's overwhelmed with this just concern for his sister. Then you talk about a ranger, a forest ranger, or pardon me, a park ranger, Faherty. Yeah, Faherty. Yeah, Faherty. And he shows up on the scene, and what does he uh, witness immediately? Well, yeah, so he's finally. Encounters Harrow. Sure. Uh, The ranger, the forest ranger, uh, National Park Service ranger, uh, finally finds the two of them at the bottom of this. bottom of this hill and uh, bottom of this cliff and it's an odd scene you know uh it looks like tony has been dragged across the ground uh, harold has started a little fire um in the corner um and verity goes up uh and looks at looks at tony and and realizes she's dead and the the idea that uh, he would have done CPR on her, what did he notice concerning 
the claim later that when he when he looked at it of the or the idea that anyone would be performing CPR. Well, what it is seems the telltale kind of sign odd that, because, that may not happen? Yeah, I, it seems kind of odd because it looks like Tony has fallen off a cliff. Uh, she crashed into some pine trees on the way down, and you know, it, it just doesn't look like he had done any CPR whatsoever. Now, how do they proceed with Tony? Uh, what do they do? They, you say they can't bring in a helicopter, but how? Yeah, they can't. You know, so they got to get Harold out of there, and he's his wife's dead, and and so he's called some friends uh, from the side of the mountain to to pick him up uh, at the trailhead, and uh, so some other rangers spend the night there uh, with Tony's body uh, while Harold meets his friends at the trailhead. Now, it means he has, he's got to trudge three or so miles back um, to where they started their hike. So does anybody officially at that time have any reservations about him and about Harold and his involvement in this at all? And, and, and if such, as they often do with police, uh, do they set up an interview with him? What's How yeah, do they so- proceed with him? Sure. So Ranger Faraday, he's a ranger, you know, with the smoky bear hat and all that. But what a lot of people don't realize is that in national parks, rangers can also double as police officers. Uh, They even have detectives. So he's a trained investigator as well as a forest ranger, park ranger. And so he's very suspicious of of Harold. Um, The dispatcher was very suspicious. The cop who was on the line with him, you know, trying to get him to do CPR was suspicious. Um, and so, you know, it's late. Uh, it's been a long day. So they, they, Ranger Faraday makes arrangements to talk to Harold the next day to, to do an interview, kind of figure out what had happened. And and how does he approach him? Because he has the official, what he, he was told, and now he has a, a chance at some point, to examine that crime scene more carefully. So how does he approach uh, approach Harold about this information? Yep. What's his yeah, strategy? I mean, at this point, uh, that night, they don't think of it as a crime scene so much as just an, uh, a death scene. You know, it's a, right. they preserve it, they're careful, but there's no real official suspicion that it's a, a crime. Uh you know, it's a busy weekend uh, in the park. A lot of people fall in national parks and, and hurt themselves. And so he's, Faraday is proceeding carefully, um, but he has his suspicions. And he has his suspicions that this is not an accident. And one of the things he does, uh, they have, Harold has uh, has this Jeep that he drove to the trailhead but his friends picked him up, so you know he leaves the jeep with the park service people and and hands them the keys and, and lets them look into the jeep. And uh, one of the first things they do is they they go through the jeep and they find a map of Rocky Mountain National Park in the jeep. And right. they open up the map, and right there with a big X is the spot where they found Tony's body. Wow. They don't confront him about that X, or 
or they don't push it? What's 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 they his don't. approach you know, with they that? They play it. Yeah, they play it kind of cool. Um, uh, Faraday does go to Harold's house and interviews him, conducts a formal interview. And if Harold's behavior was odd on the phone, on the mountain, it was even stranger by daytime. Uh, He didn't seem overly concerned about his wife's death. I think he shows the, the ranger some, like, photos, a slideshow he was putting together for the funeral. He was very proud of his slideshow. He was kind of a braggart, uh, self-involved, wanted to talk about himself a lot, uh, didn't seem to have any sadness much um, about his wife dying in a horrible fashion and, and, and him being unable to save her life. Um, he gets the story again from Harold, like, you know, what, you know, what were you doing up there and why did you go off the trail? And Harold said, well, we, we wanted to have romantic time. You know, it was our anniversary. You know, it didn't make a lot of sense that you would, you know, sh- go off the trail and shimmy down all these rocks and, you know, put yourself at risk. Um, they asked Harold about his dinner plans that night. Oh, yeah, we made reservations. Well, the timing of the reservations, there was no way they were going to get back in time to make to make that steakhouse reservation. Um you know, they, they don't, as I recall, confront him immediately about this ex uh, because his behavior is, is so suspicious. Uh, the ranger, one, wants to play it cool, and two, knows he's going to have to call in, you know, uh, a detective, somebody who is a, a trained detective, and that's what they do. At the same time, they bring in the new detective and with far more experience, they look into, they ask him, Howard, or Harold, pardon me, about Harold. insurance and, and whether he would have any, be a beneficiary. What does he tell them about the yeah, insurance? Yeah, he says question? they have, uh, and I, as I recall, it was you know, three hundred dollars $400,000 in life insurance. Um, uh, might even been a little bit more than that on, on Tony. Uh, she's an ophthalmologist, you know. Uh, he tells them he's a, a, a business consultant. He does consulting with nonprofit organizations. They have a very nice house in a Denver suburb. So, you know, she's not overly insured for the people of that station. And and he says, Harold tells the ranger, yeah, we have this insurance on her life, but all the money goes to their daughter, um, who's like eight or nine years old. So uh, that's, the, that's what he tells them about the insurance. You talk about uh, on October 1st, 2012, Dr. Wilkinson, the ME for Larimer County, what does he conclude from that examination? Yeah, so he's the he's the the coroner then does the does the autopsy on the body. And he finds what you might expect when somebody falls off a cliff and dies. just the body was 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 really ravaged, lots of broken bones and internal injuries. But he finds something kind of interesting, which is that her her breastbone, her sternum was not broken. Um, and normally, when somebody, especially an amateur, is performing chest compressions or CPR, uh, you will you will have some injury, some bruising or even a broken bone there. And so just from that examination, uh, it appears appears that Harold did not perform CPR. And so 
you know, you have to ask yourself, well, why did he claim he performed CPR when he didn't? And so uh, the medical examiner uh, does not give, he gives a cause of death, which is, uh, you know, a fall from a high distance onto the ground. But the manner of death, uh, he says that a homicide cannot be ruled out. He just doesn't come to a conclusion. He refuses to say it was an accident. Right. Now you cut to how Tony and who Tony is. You said that she's a successful doctor. And one day in 1999, she sees a photo of a handsome man in his 40s, or we claiming to be in his 40s on a dating site. Tell us about what kind of site she was looking at and what kind of person... Sure. Tony was. Yeah, so Tony grew up in the South, in Mississippi. Uh, she came from a very wealthy family. They were in the oil business, the Henthorns, and uh, father owned an oil business. Her other brother was in the oil business. Mother was a nurse. Uh, so she grew up uh, in, in a very well-to-do household. Uh, she was kind of a jock uh, growing up. She was very athletic, played basketball and other sports, uh, and very, very smart, very, very smart. And... Uh, so after high school, I, I think she went to, ooh, I want to say Ole Miss, I, I can't remember, but would, uh, went, to, went to college, and pre-med, and went to medical school and became an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor. And uh, uh, after graduation, or she, she married uh, briefly, and uh, it didn't work out, got divorced, and was very, very embarrassed by that um, and felt that she had failed and and it was her fault. Uh, uh, So she plugs along as an ophthalmologist in Mississippi, remains close to her family. She's very, very religious, um, devoutly religious, and a very good, kind soul, just the kind of person who always has something nice to say to everybody. She volunteers her time for sick kids, and, you know, she does charity work, and and, and she's just this warm, wonderful person, and and it's amazing that you know nobody would 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 fall in love with her. And and she doesn't tell her parents this, but she secretly goes on a dating website. It's called Christian Mingle. It's a it's a website for Christians, um, um, and she comes across this profile of a man who seems frankly, from his profile, too good to be true. And even by the kind of standards of, you know, people are always trying to put out their their best face forward on a dating site. And this guy just seems perfect. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's successful. Uh, you know, he's, he's a businessman. He loves the outdoors and long strolls on the beach. And, you know, and he's, he's devoutly religious. And, and you know, he's, he's looking for you know, looking for somebody just like Tony. She calls up the photo. He's a good-looking guy, you know, um, lives out in Colorado. And, you know, she's really smitten, frankly, just just reading his his profile. And uh, so they begin begin kind of an online uh, dating that that becomes uh, in-person dating. And how does the family... Because they're really very close family, Tony, the Bertolettes. And uh, so what do they think of this whole idea once they do find out that she's been dating online? Because there's a meeting. They finally, after several weeks, so what do they think of him? Well, do they have any reservations whatsoever? You know, they they love 
their daughter or sister, Tony. They love Tony dearly. They know how devastated she was by the divorce. Um, she's getting older. She wants to have start a family, you know, and so they know how how eager she is to to find love, to to get married, to to start having kids. They just want the best for her. Uh, they are aghast that she went on a dating website. I mean, this is southern southern gentility here. You know, these are these are <laughs> they're very very. You know, these are part of the kind of the social elite of Mississippi, and and uh, uh, so you know they were maybe not devastated, but they were they were surprised, you know, and and a little put off. Um, you know, they they finally meet Harold. Um, he comes out from Colorado, and it's one of those situations where, well, you know, probably not the guy they would have picked for her. Um, he's a little loud. Kind of brags a lot, you know. He's one of these guys that has an opinion on everything. Um, but he had studied geology in college and at Madison University in Virginia, and, and uh, uh, one of Tony's brothers is a geologist, and her father's a geologist because they're in the oil business, so they have that in common. And he clearly, clearly knows what he's talking about. He says he does volunteer, I mean, um, uh, business consulting for nonprofits, and. I think it was her father um, also knew somebody in the same business, and he seemed to know, you know, he could talk the talk. So, you know, it's one of these things where, no, they they didn't think he was perfect for her, but uh, she seemed just uh, over the moon and happy, and and he he seemed financially secure and wasn't after her money, and and you know, clearly had her interests in mind, and they both seemed very much in love. So, you know. They wanted her to be happy, so whatever reservations, it weren't even reservations, just whatever kind of feelings they had, they they set aside and and gave Tony their blessing. Yeah, they did seem to be impressed and at least not suspicious about any of the things that he was telling them. And also, this is, again, shocking information, but they they also announced that they were going to be married nine months later. So this was an acceptance. Yeah, that surprised them. I mean, they knew Tony was eager uh, to get married and have children. They didn't know she was that eager. But, you know, Tony, she's, look, she's a doctor. She's a, a strong-willed, educated woman, and, and you know, they, if that's what she wanted, well, then that's what they were going to do. Now, you say things were at least, and in, in retrospect, it always seems much more suspicious and telling, but... You say it was very odd right from the start. People noticed just a little odd thing indicative of something. Talks about the wedding. When you talk about the wedding announcement, what was the problem with the wedding announcement for him? Well, he did not, on the actual physical announcement, he did not want her identified as Dr. Tony. Um, you know, and they thought, well, that was kind of strange. You know, uh, he just wanted it, wanted it to be her name. Um he seemed very uh, uh very intent on making all the decisions about the wedding uh you know he wanted to plan everything which you know they thought not to be sexist but they thought that was kind of odd that 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 he would be the one who had to make all the decisions and decide how everything should be yet he wanted the the Bertolais to pay for everything um yeah. uh so you know he just you know, here and there, he just kind of 
rub them the wrong way. Yeah, you say the he asked the brother to do a favor in terms of setting up a rehearsal dinner, and then he said, well, I'll, I'll give you a check. I'll write you a check, and just never wrote the check. So he started off with the family at least, you know, for a guy that's supposed to be fabulously wealthy, promising them to build a million-dollar home for their sister and their daughter, that he was stiffing them right at this point. And then you yeah, talk about... Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it's just one of those things where when you look... It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Back, and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, again, at the time, uh, they're not marrying the guy. She is. And... He's not perfect. Uh, she clearly has rose-colored glasses. But, you know, maybe Tony wasn't perfect either. Who knows? Uh, you know, he. I think that they thought, well, he's not the guy we would pick, but she could probably do a lot worse. Right. They get married September 30th, 2000. A big formal Southern wedding in Jackson, Mississippi, as you write and ceremony at the First Baptist Church, and, of course, you say parents paid for the wedding. But despite that, you say, just like controlling kind of person, he tried to direct the wedding, picking out everything, controlling every aspect of it. Um, then it was a honeymoon in Hawaii. Hawaii, pardon me. What was it, the talk right away, about Tony and her profession? What was What was something that he was adamant about that he wanted to happen. Um, well, I, you know, I think he wanted, and I'm not quite sure uh, which part of it. Uh, I know, you know, he wanted her to move to Colorado with him, um, and he wanted her to work. Uh, she wanted to, you know, maybe go part time or even take time off uh, to start a family. Um, he not only wanted her in Colorado with him uh, and working, but, you know, he wanted to have a bit of a say in in her career um, uh, and to the point where, you know, he wanted to be, if she was going to become a, a partner in a, in, a, in a practice, he wanted to be involved in the planning and, and even in the meetings. He, he wanted to have this really integral role in her career when she kind of wanted to to back off a little bit. Now, once they make the move and they give the blessing for their daughter to move to Denver, um, does the relationship between and the closeness change between the family and Tony? And you give sort of a, sort of a great example of what they sort of sense or what they see or experience. Yeah, this is when, 
you know, in the beginning, he rubbed them. Harold rubbed the family the wrong way. They had, you know, they didn't think he was perfect. And But after they got married and moved to Denver, um, there were some real troubling signs. Uh, and it appeared that, that Harold was not just controlling about the wedding. He was controlling about everything. And, you know, Tony's mom would call her and want to talk to her. They had a very close relationship their whole lives. And, and Harold would always insist on being on the line, uh, wouldn't let Tony talk to her mother by herself. Um, uh, you know, things like that. And, you know, they would, the mother and the, would, would say, you know, Tony is, you know, they, 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 they're they a close family, but certainly at this point, they were not the kind of family that would pry into each other's business uh, too much. And her parents were very reluctant to even gingerly asked Tony, are there any problems in the marriage? Partly because Tony was very defensive about it and, and made it very clear that she wasn't going to talk about it. But, you know, they didn't, in the beginning anyway, really, really push uh, if there was any issue. You talk about uh, an incident uh, near the border of Rocky Mountain National Park where the Henthorns owned a cabin and a couple spent Memorial Day there, weekend 2011, bringing their daughter Haley. Um, one of the things that came true for for Tony was the, the birth of their daughter Haley. Um, at that time, she was six or seven, I believe. Yeah. Anyway, on May 28th, you you talk about an incident at when they're at this camp that weekend. What happens? And tell us what Tony tells her parents, and uh, tell us about this whole incident. Yeah, so they're working, they have a cabin, a vacation cabin in the mountains, um, and they go up there for the weekend, um, and yes, they had a baby, and, and they're very happy, and Haley was a sweet, sweet little girl, and she's six, seven years old at this point, and uh, they're doing some, because it's a weekend cabin, they're doing a little bit of work out on the deck, and Tony's doing some work on the deck when all of a sudden, a big piece of wood falls down and bonks her in the head. I mean, knocks her flat onto the ground, and to the point where you know they had to call the paramedics out. And um, uh, you know she's she's pretty badly injured and had some nerve damage. And and you know Harold had been kind of working. Uh, up higher, she I think was on the ground, and he was up on the deck or something like that, and and you know it was all like kind of suspicious how this big piece of wood came down and and hit her, and you know Harold had two or three versions of of what actually happened. At one point he said, oh, it was just a little piece of flashing or you know little small piece of wood, but it was obvious it was like a piece of plywood that hit her, and you know he doesn't know what happened, and and he gives one story to the paramedics, and he gives a different story to Tony's parents, and you know Tony doesn't entirely know, and you know, and that now the the family's really starting to worry. You know, what is is he abusing her? Did he try to try to hurt her? And again, Tony's very defensive and and just you know insists that uh, you know that you know stay out of my business. Uh, I'll take care of it. It gets to the point where the warning sign is there that uh, Tony's mother Yvonne told Tony. That you didn't think this incident was an accident, and and what was 
Tony's reaction? You say you're usually defensive. What did she say to her mother when she contended that? Um, you know, I'm trying to remember what that was. Uh, as I recall, Tony finally gets less defensive, and yeah, and you know, starts you know expressing for the first time to her family her own concerns um, about her marriage uh, and about the future. Uh, and you know, and I can't remember if she told her mother or not, but at this point, she's worried about the money. Uh, she's making all the money, and Harold's not pulling his weight, and that she's going to get her own bank account, and and you know may even be thinking about divorce. Right, right. What does Barry, when Barry hears the news, the brother Barry, what does the physician? What does he? He think? immediately thinks Harold is 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 out to get Tony, and he's angry. Um, the whole family is is really, really becoming concerned at this point. He thinks that Harold pushed his sister. That's what he's convinced of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pushed her or uh, threw the wood at her. But you know, so, you know, this was this was Harold. This was something Harold did. And you know, the family's gone from sort of quietly, gingerly walking on eggshells to to really getting worried about. Uh, Tony's marriage, and really worried about Harold Henthorne. Now tell us uh, uh, about just the days before this incident um, and what police are finding from their investigation at the same time. Well, you know, police are kind of backtracking and they're looking into uh, and when I say police, uh, it, it starts out with an investigator from the, the Park Service, a, a homicide investigator who works for the Park Service. Now, this is because this happened on uh, a national park. This is considered a, a federal case, uh, which will be very important later on. But you know, they start looking into Harold and his background, and you know, they've got this whole. This, this this map business with the, the X marks the spot, but they, they start finding out that Harold is not telling the truth about his uh, about his career. You know, they they get a business card from him, and it turns out it's just a you know post office box uh, that he that he hasn't ever, you know filed any income tax uh, returns with any money, doesn't make any money. Uh, he's not this high-flying consultant for nonprofits. He basically sits around a, you know, Panera uh, cafe all day. Um, you know, he's not what he appears. Um, and so, you know, the, the, a lot of a lot of red flags are starting are starting to flap. When there is news of their of Tony uh, being killed, the family uh, plays the role with Harold that they are not really suspicious of him and they're supportive of him. Meanwhile, what do they do and what is their tact in in doing right. what they've uh, planned to do? Right. When you read the press accounts at the time, and it, it, this did not make a lot of news at the time, uh, small stories in the newspaper, uh, local paper, brief mention on the website of TV. They just 
It was characterized as a tragic accident. Tony's family immediately thought Harold had pushed her off the cliff. And uh, very quickly they were in touch with investigators. But they decide not to confront Harold. And instead, because there is no evidence, really, that he pushed her, only their suspicions, um, they decide to become sort of amateur undercover cops on behalf of the Park Service. And they go out to Denver. They talk to Harold. They observe Harold. They write everything down that he does, every contradiction in his various stories. They start very carefully prying into his past, and they are reporting all of this information to the detective. What is his decision in terms of burial versus cremation, and what's his behavior surrounding that decision? Well, he is just absolutely crazy around the time of the funeral. Now, I say funeral. They had two funerals. They had one in uh, Colorado, and they had a different service out in Mississippi. And Harold is just, all he's talking about is this stupid park ranger Faraday and and Barney Fife and what a dummy is and why he won't leave me alone and me, 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 me. Meanwhile, you know, Tony is dead. You know, they lost a daughter. They lost a sister. And all Harold's talking about is me and poor me and why don't they leave me alone and all this kind of stuff. And, and they're you know, they're getting really irritated by this. Um, they also want Tony to have a, a burial, but, but, you know, Harold is insistent, insistent that she be cremated, and not just cremated, but right away. And he wants to sprinkle her ashes uh, over a, you know, off a, off a mountaintop. And, you know, they're, they're really angry about that. It's interesting too. You you write how at this memorial he even they have to tell him to turn down the music. He's completely like you say crazed at this thing, with no respect for anyone. Or it seems. No, he's 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 really disrespectful. He's you know all about himself. He's acting like he's the victim in all this. Uh, it was around the time it might have even been at the funeral when he got word. Uh, somehow from the medical examiner that the medical examiner refused to call it an accident. This gets him angry. You know? right. uh, and just like the wedding, he, he wants to micromanage the funeral. Um, he arranges this slideshow that's a bunch of pictures of himself, you know, and it, it's just everything about him is just really weird. Um, when they go to the, the service in Mississippi, you know, he's giving different versions of the story about what happened on the mountain. And, you know, first it was he got the text from the babysitter who gave the score of the game, but then they find out the game hadn't happened yet or was about to happen or something. And I mean, none of, none of his stories add up, you know. Um, uh, Tony's brother already knows that, you know, the, the, the report that he gave about her vital signs was just not correct. He was using kind of like made-up medical terminology. Um, you know, it just, nothing about it made sense. Yet at the same time, he has, you know, Haley. Um, he, he's not uh, arrested. He has custody of who is their granddaughter, niece. Um, and, you know, so they don't want to rock the boat too much. And they want to try to you know, use all of these contradictions and crazy behavior against him, so they keep going along with him. 
talk about detectives and interviewing people uh, and talking to all kinds of people related to this. But you talk about Detective Shot and Faraday retracing the hike and trying to find that use trail that Harold had spoke of. Yeah. And yeah, they you know they go up and they hike the trail. They yeah, they did a GoPro camera. And they, you know, they just they couldn't figure out why this middle-aged couple. And keep in mind, at this point in life, uh, Tony has bad knees. She's had a couple of knee surgeries. Um, you know, why on earth did this couple uh, decide to take this arduous hike, side of a mountain, and then why did they? you know, go off the trail. And Harold said there was like a, a use trail or a maintenance trail or something like that that they went to. Well, they couldn't find that. They clearly just went right off the trail. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that dumb kids do, you know, not not a professional couple. Um, you know, they, they just, his story at every single turn is not making sense. They also analyze the photo of Harold when he talks about this crucial photo was time-stamped at 30 seconds after 5 o'clock exactly, which means that they could conclude that he waited nearly an hour to call 911. Yeah, that was the and first then they said big gap. Yeah, it's like, well, what what were you doing for that hour? And, you know, he the well, I climbed down the train. You know, it's like, well, why didn't you, if your wife went off a cliff, why didn't you dial 911 immediately? Well, it was still light. Um, you know, we have, and it's heartbreaking, we have that photo that he took of her standing and with nothing behind her, you know, and seconds after that picture is taken, she's gone. Wouldn't the first thing you would do is dial 911, help, my wife has fallen off a cliff? And also when they detectives went down that same route that he said it took 45, it took them 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at each point, they would come back and they would start asking Harold questions, and and you know either he wouldn't talk to them or they would talk to the family and they would feed these questions to the family, and and he would give you know a whole variety of different answers. So his whole timeline uh, just it just wasn't consistent and didn't make sense. This investigation, detectives unearthed Daniel Jarvis. Um, Tell us a little bit about what they get from Daniel Jarvis. It seems very odd. Yeah, I mean, Daniel is like, uh, I don't think he's officially a nephew. He's sort of a uh, a very close, uh, you know, friend of Harold's. And, and, you know, at the funeral, Harold is, is you know, just just out of control. And he's, he's complaining to, to Daniel about, you know, the Verity, the Ranger, and, and and the map, the map, the map, the map. You know, he's got something about this map. He won't leave me alone about the map, you know. And, you know, Daniel, who, who liked and respected Harold, uh, was very concerned. He's like, well, why is Harold so paranoid? Why why won't he just let this business go about the ranger and, and looking into the wife's death? Because, of course, they're going to do that. The As this investigation progresses, too, they uncover how this. When we talked about the the um, the savings for Haley, uh, yeah. the trust for Haley, but that beneficiary changed. So at some point, yeah. they find out that that about poli- that policy and other policies. Tell us about what they d- uncover. Sure, they find out that Harold uh, greatly underestimated how much life insurance 
uh, was on uh, on his wife. Uh, in fact, it was you know, over a million bucks, I think. I, I can't remember what the exact amount was, but it was a lot of money. And uh, worse, he lied. Uh, the beneficiary was not Haley. It was him. And they uncover a couple of other life insurance policies that he didn't even tell them about. And the beneficiary was him. Now, a letter happens sent to authorities talking about, well, tell us what this letter sent to authorities talks about and the connection. Yeah, so this is something Harold doesn't know. It's something the public doesn't know, and it's something the family uh, of Tony only finds out a little bit later. But within days, within days of uh, Tony going over the cliff, um, a letter goes to a couple of law enforcement agencies. And the letter says, you know that case of the woman who fell off the cliff in Rocky Mountain National Park? Well, the husband had been married before, and there are similarities between what happened to Tony and what happened to this guy's first wife. And you may really want to investigate the death of his first wife. Now we're talking about Sandra Lynn Henthorn, and as you write, they they meet in high school. So tell us about their relationship before we talk about her demise. Sure. So, um, and keep in mind, this is all information that Tony's family doesn't even know. All they right. knew was that they had they knew that he had been married before, and they knew that his previous wife had died. Um, and he kind of made it sound like it was a car accident or something. Um, but it was much more than that. And so Harold, uh, when he, he this was a college sweetheart. Um, her name is Sandra Lynn. She went by Lynn. Um, they met at, at college, and he was studying geology, and she was uh, she was uh, studying, I think, social work. And um, they got married. Uh, and uh, uh, moved to moved to Colorado, um, and uh, you know she kind of eerily was 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 very similar uh, to Tony, uh, a, a deeply deeply religious woman, uh, strong willed. Um, they even look a little bit alike. Uh, another uh, another redhead, um, and. Uh, yeah, and and they he had had this this rather long marriage uh, with this other woman that Tony's family knew absolutely nothing about. They looked into the records now because as we're this discovery is that somebody's looking at these records from 17 years before. Um, you talk about uh, Detective Stott, and yeah. what do they see that's pretty evident in these records? What do they conclude, at least, just by looking at these records or lack of records? Well, the, yeah, so the first Mrs. Henthorne dies in 1995, and, and like you said, 17 years um, previous and to Tony's death. And uh, they go to the sheriff's department there um, in uh, Douglas County, and they find out that 
Lynn Henthorne in 1995 was out driving with her husband, Harold, and in the middle of the night, uh, the car gets a flat, and while they are changing the tire of the, the car, somehow Lynn gets under the car, the car slips off the jack, and crushes her to death. And this is on a little remote road out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, and Harold is the only the only witness. After that, he goes out onto the highway, and or at least that's the first witness of what he does. What does he do and what does he say in response to what has happened to his wife? Officially? Well, he flags down... Uh, this carload of people, the Montoya family, they've been out for the day drinking, and, uh, you know, they pull over, he kind of flags them down, he says, oh, you know, there's been this accident, um, uh, you know, a couple of the, the Montoya people go, remember, this is now 95, this is before there's even cell phones, so they, right. a couple of them peeled off and went to a, a little cabin nearby and found a guy who had a phone so they could call uh, 911, and you know, one of the one of the Montoya family members tries to put a, a you know jacket of, or something over. You know, they see Lynn lying there, you know, and doesn't want he. You know, Harold's like, no, don't cover her up. You know, he's he's acting very acting very strange, and he and you know he's telling this story that just doesn't make any sense about how his jeep slipped off a jack and landed on his wife. Does he tell them anything about how it comes to be that he's not, he's at the back, or he, he elaborates not to yeah, those Yeah, well, he people? gives, you know, over the course of the evening, um, you know, eventually rescue people, uh, helicopter arrives, uh, interestingly enough, and and yeah, even though Lynn is very clearly dead, uh, or on the brink of death anyway, they, they haul her off to the hospital, see if they can try to revive her. Um and you know a series of of young uh, basically sheriff's deputies talked to Harold that night and you know he gives them this story uh about how he had a had a not a blowout but had kind of a, a soft tire on the road it's a little road south of denver um while they were out taking a day trip uh they they pulls over to the side of the road um he gets out, you know, he tries to jack up the the car with a with one jack and that jack doesn't work and and then for some reason he has another jack that he uses for his boat and so he tries to jack up the car with that jack and then he's got a third jack with him and he and he's using that jack and he gets the you know, he gets the, the, the Jeep up uh, on the jacks and and this he's kind of rickety boat jacks and he you know, he he's taking the tires the right front passenger tire off uh he's handing the lug nuts to lynn uh uh he gets the tire off he goes around to the back of the jeep and uh he throws the tire into the back of the jeep and he thinks that the force of throwing the tire into the back of the jeep into the into the back area hatch area somehow knocks the jeep off the jack and for whatever reason uh, Lynn had found her way under the Jeep, and then the Jeep tire well um, uh, rim uh, smashes onto her back. 
And so when he tells anyone, not anyone, when he tells several people this story, first with the people that were in the, in the vehicle, then later with uh, Detective McMahon that arrives on the scene. Yeah. Are they suspicious of this account, this explanation? Well, uh, if you know, we're looking through what are almost 20-year-old police reports. And right. yes, there is some suspicion. In fact, I think they call it suspicious death. They mark a little box on the form. Uh, you know, clearly the story is a little odd. Um, uh, Jeeps just don't fall on women in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, you know, they're talking to him. Um, and the interviews go, keep in mind, three or four, but this Detective McMahon kind of takes the lead. Um, and, you know, he talks to him at night and then goes by his house a couple of days later with a supervisor and talks to him again. You know, there's a lot of discrepancies uh, in his story. You know, like, well, where did you go? Why were you out driving? Um, you know, uh, why did you pull over? You know, um, uh, did you go to, you know, at one point he says they were had dinner. At another point he says they were about to have dinner. Um, you know, uh, there was all kinds of discrepancies in the story. Um, and, you know, it, so yes, it, it seems suspicious, but... When you read the reports now, it doesn't scream suspicion, but they did call it a suspicious death investigation. Right. Now, the government has ex expanded its investigative team, as you say, adding FBI agent Jonathan Grusing, Mark Calico, both FBI, uh, and uh, local police in Colorado. And uh, they obviously find out about this death and do more research on this, and you say also that the U.S. Uh, attorney for Denver gets a, a warrant for Harold's cell phone re records, isn't that? Yeah, so now they've got two homicide, potential homicides, 17 years apart, two wives, and it's a big investigation spanning a lot of years, and they, they get enough information to, to look into a cell phone, and what they what you can find from a cell phone is you can you can track where a phone was when di when calls were made by whichever tower uh, the calls being pinged and it turns out that it appears Harold had been casing the location where they went hiking uh had been driving around uh in Rocky Mountain National Park um on weekends and days in which he claimed he was on business trips. And their conclusion is that he had been up there making plans and, and getting the lay of the land. He also at one point claimed that he was fooling with her phone on that trail that day. What do they find about eventually about that phone? Um, if I recall right, her phone wasn't even with her. If, if I'm, That's if right. I'm, yeah, if yeah. I'm remembering this correctly, it was just one of many, contradictions they actually left the phone at his uh, at her uh, business office judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, eventually, they think they have enough information to try to arrest him and charge him. And tell us of what, I mean, obviously, we've seen that they, they believe that there is definite link that he's killed before and he's killed again. What do they want to do with that information, potentially? We know that uh, when we watch some cases that past information cannot be admissible yeah. in a trial. So tell us a little bit about this endeavor. Yeah, it's, it's, they finally get enough information, and we're talking a long time has passed. You know, this is months and months and months and months and months uh, this investigation has dragged on. Because they have no eyewitness, because they have no confession, because they have really no physical evidence. Uh, they just have a mountain of contradictions and strange behavior. But they've, they also uncover that Harold had tried to take out a life insurance policy on somebody else, um, an in-law of his first wife, and that he had made himself a beneficiary of that life insurance policy and had lied to her about it. So they, they, you know, they're getting a lot of information. and But it's critical. It's critical that they can use both of these deaths in the same case, even though he was not arrested the first time. In fact, the first investigation ended with the sheriff's deputies concluding that it was an accident, despite all the contradictions. But they want to use the details. They want to use that information. Well, that's in law called a prior bad act. And basically, under the law, you're charged with the crime that you're charged with. So if I rob a bank, you're charged with that crime. You face that evidence. So let's say I had you know, beat up my wife previously, or even robbed a bank previously, you're not, you're not, information is not allowed into the case. It's prejudicial. Um, It has nothing to do with it. It's what they call propensity evidence. Just because you seem to act like a criminal doesn't mean you're criminal. The the law is pretty strict on that, that you, you know, you, you are tried on the facts of the case. So if they're going to arrest him in the death of Tony, it has to only be under a lot of legal theories, only about this one incident, and that they would not be allowed to include anything about the first wife's death or even that incident at the cabin. You know, as bad as that stuff looks, what does it have to do with Tony's death? But there is a, 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 a legal theory. It's called the Doctrine of Chances. It goes back oh, over 100 years. And it, it, it basically says... If the the details are similar enough, it's not prejudicial. It's not propensitary. It's like, what are the odds? You know, it it, it goes to planning. It goes to uh, a scheme. It goes to uh, a, a very direct linkage. So if you can convince a judge, if you can convince a judge that the details are so similar, that the odds are so astronomical, I mean, how many times does two wives, you know, the same guy die under similar circumstances. If the odds are so astronomically against that, then the judge can allow that into evidence. And that's what they, that's what they argued. Now, people awaited this decision, the Bertolettes, um, 
and the uh, and pardon me and the other victims uh, family as well the what is the decision by the judge the judge agrees to allow into evidence the first wife's death and all those details even though he was never arrested he agrees to allow into evidence details of the wood falling on Tony's head a few months before her murder at the cabin. Um, he doesn't allow, there was this, uh, this other um, life insurance policy on another woman um, I had mentioned. He does not allow that. He says that was a little too remote. But under the doctrine of chances, right. he does allow that evidence. So um, at trial, a jury will be allowed to not only hear about the evidence of Tony falling off the cliff, they will be allowed to hear evidence about the Jeep falling on Lynn. Even though, even though he's not going to be charged in Lynn's death, he's only going to be charged in Tony's death, but under this legal theory, they are allowed to bring in evidence and details about Lynn's death. You talk about the, the media response with this, and particular one journalist that uh, did some over and beyond the call of duty, we'll say, and and got some, like you say, journalistic coups. Uh, tell us a little bit about this media response, and uh, it, it's a little a little unusual. It's uh, treatment yeah, it is. It's, it's Brian Moss. He's a TV reporter in the Denver. He's an investigative reporter in the Denver area. And keep in mind this this case. After Tony went off the cliff, little tiny stories in the local papers, even on Brian's own right. own website. Um, it was not a big deal. Um, there was way back in 1995 a little bit of information about Lynn's death uh, in the local paper, but it was a one-day story, came and went. And so this investigative reporter in Denver is digging, 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 and he is able to get lots of information. He's able to find the autopsy report in which homicide was not excluded. He's able to get, you know, uh, the contradictions uh, uh, that uh, Harold is saying. He finds out information about the first wife, um, and he gets enough information to where yeah, this is before Harold's arrest, that he's able to confront Harold. Harold won't talk to him. Um, uh, but the cat's kind of out of the bag at that point. This is also covered by 48 Hours and Dateline and People magazine, correct? Yeah, by the time, uh, by the time he is charged, uh, by the time the, you know, between Moss's story and the authorities go public with all this, then it becomes a media sensation. Um, and as more details are leaked out about that first investigation and how badly police handled it and how they, you know, why they bought his story and came to the conclusion that it was an accident uh, is anybody's guess. Uh, yeah, it becomes, it becomes a, real, uh, a real media event. The real victim in this, especially the victim in this, other than Tony, is Haley, the daughter. You talked about the family not wanting to upset the cart and, and stop visitation, but in 2013, when they publicly, with the media, came out and denounced him, tell us from that point up to the trial itself a little bit about Haley. And yeah, it's it's, it's a shame, and you know she's a sweet, uh, by all accounts, a sweet, wonderful girl, and and once the, the the news gets out there, and and Tony's family comments publicly, uh, Harold will have nothing to do with them, 
and it's like an ugly divorce. You know, he starts bad-mouthing Tony to his daughter. He starts bad-mouthing Tony's family to his daughter. Um, He becomes a real pest at the school, Um, you know, and, and Haley really, really suffers some, some difficult times. Now, at trial, we talk about the U.S. attorney, Sunita Hazra, and uh, how they're proceeding with this case, and you talk about all of the witnesses that testified. How does this trial proceed? Well, it's, um, you know, they, they, they won that big battle up front, which was to get the 1995 death information right. in. But they still have a circumstantial case. Now, you know, legally, as I'm sure your you know, listeners know, circumstantial evidence holds the same legal weight as direct evidence. But, you know, let's be real. Uh, if, if you have forensic evidence, if you have direct evidence, if you have eyewitness evidence, it always seems a lot stronger than if you're trying to build a, and trying to craft a story um, and, and ask the jury to make inferences. So they have a, they have a, a, tough, a tough go. And they're essentially, the prosecution is essentially asking the jury to believe that, you know, if Harold lied about all these different things from the time the text message came in from the babysitter to, you know, why he spent so much time going down the cliff doing CPR, blah, blah, blah. If he lied about all those things, then he's probably also lying about his innocence. And that's, that's what they're trying to prove. And they're also trying to show that, you know, you know what are the odds? Obviously, he did this. Um, it's just the odds are too astronomical that both of these wives would have died under such similar circumstances. You've got to believe that um, he killed Tony. Um, you know, at the same time, weirdly, the defense is saying, look, you know, there's no witness, uh, you know, no confession, uh, really no forensic evidence. Uh, yes, he's an odd duck, but uh, that doesn't mean he's a killer. What were the... What was it like for the families? Tell us a little bit about any. Yeah, I think the the most difficult time at trial, you know, and and this is stuff that they always do at trial, and it's very difficult. They show pictures of the crime scene. They show pictures of the body. They yeah. sometimes show autopsy photos, and you know, her family, Tony's family, is there while they're seeing pictures of their crushed and and dead, you know, daughter, or sister, and and you know, even for. Even for this family, it, 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 and they, you know, they, they girded themselves and toughened themselves up. They, they just, it was just too much to, to bear, you know. They're also sitting there watching Harold all day, you know, and and you can only imagine the the, the anger and the sense of betrayal they had to have felt looking at this guy sitting there, having, uh, you know, in their minds killed their killed their loved one, and then finally, I think the family. And they were very, you know, they're very open about that. When I talked to them, they they felt a lot of guilt. You know, they blame themselves. Uh, could we have done something differently? You know, should we have intervened more when we were worried? You know, uh, were we too concerned about hurting Tony's feelings? You know, should we have spoken up? You know, could could we have prevented this? And and you know, they they're really really racked with guilt. Yvonne had said uh, earlier that she had asked her husband to investigate after the incident at the cabin to investigate Harold, and yet the husband, her husband Robert, didn't want to interfere, as you say. No, she wanted, she raised the issue of hiring a private investigator, and 
they talked about it and decided not to. You know, we're, we're dealing with a woman who's, you know, 49, 50 years old, you know, not a child. And, uh, and you know, when they look back and in 2020 hindsight, yes, they should have dropped everything and hired an investigator and looked into it. And, and, and even if it meant, you know, getting Tony upset, they should have done it, but they didn't. You talk about his Harold's demeanor and eye contact and behavior at this trial. What was that like? Was there any flashes of acknowledgement of anything? Arrogance? What no, was he, like? he was. You know, and you know, this is. You want them to be a monster. You know, uh, this diabolical black widower. Uh, he did did such uh, horrible things. The prosecution said yet. In court, he was just kind of this pathetic figure, wouldn't look anybody in the eye. Uh, you know, he lost a lot of weight in, in prison and and jail, rather. And, and, you know, he was just kind of pathetic. There was talk um, earlier where they found and discovered that he had sent his brother, because we don't really hear anything about his family at all, but talk yeah. about Harold's brother and the money he received of a half a million dollars for his so-called business. Yeah, there was, and that was the hardest nut for me to crack as a writer. Um, as you can imagine, uh, his family uh, did not want to cooperate uh, with this book. Um, he had a brother, uh, has a brother, and there were some financial uh, shenanigans involving the life insurance money and money. You know, he, Harold stood to inherit a lot of money from Tony, not just this, whatever I think was ultimately millions of dollars in life insurance but you know she stood to inherit a lot of money and had a lot of money from the family oil business you know so there's a lot of money bouncing around and there were some financial shenanigans uh involving the brother harold's brother and that he was trying to hide half a million dollars and uh you know he made a brief appearance in this thing never really gave any comment and and has drifted away there's some interesting testimony to uh, Tamara Gordon, the photographer, uh, testifying again about how Harold had a different story for what he was doing at that exact time that he noticed she was gone. And then her describing, well, maybe you can tell us about her experience at the memorial. Yeah, it was just, it was another one of these things, like all the witnesses, he couldn't tell the same story twice. Uh, about what happened up there on the mountain. And, again, you would think uh, a moment like this would be just etched in your psyche. I mean, this has to be the most traumatic moment of a person's life. Um, she had actually worked with Harold before um, and knew him. And, you know, she was another one who just talked about his bizarre behavior and, and how, you know, his wife is lying on a slab at the morgue, and, you know, he's all excited about the, the slideshow and picking out the photos and, you know, and uh, people at the, the funeral call it the Harold Henthorn show, you know, all these pictures of himself and picking out the, the music. And, you know, she was she was really. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. 
put off by that. And also he shared with her that he had lost his first wife in a car accident, incredibly. Yes, yes, and this is a story he told a lot of people, uh, that it was yeah. a car accident, um, if he if he mentioned it at all. Um, but there were never any details, and he certainly never gave any details to uh, Tony's family. In fact, Again, these are very mannered, uh, nice people. They they thought it would be untoward of them to ask or to press. And I'm, you know, I always we don't know now, of course, but I'm always curious how much Tony knew, you know, um, and uh, whether he ever told her anything. My guess is uh, she didn't know. You also uh, you talk about the uh, the other witnesses as well. Daniel Jarvis does some damaging testimony when he talks about the map and when he talks about the conversation. Tell us about that conversation. That's somewhat damaging at trial, wasn't it? Is this the one, and you're going to have to, you probably remember this one better than I do, but didn't he want uh, Daniel to hold the map or keep the map, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, it it just sort of fell under, you know, it's just just this web, this this, this cascade of, of strange behavior and, and, and seemingly incriminating behavior. And I think he asked Daniel, you know, hold on I, to this map. And I, I think there was some issue about the photos. He didn't, he, he wanted Daniel to to mm-hmm. hold on to some of the photos from that day. Um, but it, it kind of falls under the category of, well, he's acting odd, but he's not admitting to murder. You know, he's not right. saying I, I killed the bee, you know, he's not, uh, I plan this, you know, he's just acting strange and and even after all the investigation that's really the crux of the case is is one witness after another saying he changed his story and he acted odd he acted inappropriately but you know the question for the jury is uh does that all add up to a murder conviction you know did he change his story enough did he act strangely enough to where you could vote for murder and that's you know that's a you know, there's a lot of reasonable doubt there. Yeah, and you say like it's circumstantial, but in this case, there is a lot of stuff that they're chipping away in because they're trying to counter as many, get as many witnesses to say, okay, in hindsight, he had odd behavior. Mm-hmm. And yet, some of these people didn't put that in a report, but then they say, well, he did this and he did that. But again, that's in retrospect. It's odd behavior now, considering... But there was a lot of that type of evidence that they just tried to stack up in yeah, terms and of what, volume. Yeah, of, what, it, what it really meant um, is the prosecution had to tell a story. It wasn't enough to just lay out the evidence, present the evidence, right. show it to the jury. Here's a picture. Here's here's the police report. They really had to be storytellers. They had to do what I did, you know, which is tell a compelling story. And because it was all about the connections, it was all about the inferences, it was all about the you know, if you didn't believe this, do you believe that? If you didn't believe this, do you believe that? You know, and this man, you know, telling lie after lie after lie. And at what point, at what point, what's the tipping point where he lied so much you have to believe he's a killer? Can you talk about the important testimony of Beth, of Beth Stott? How important is that testimony, and what does she really be able to help the prosecution? Yeah, so she was the Park Service investigator, and, you know, she's she is 
is one who is sort of on the front lines of of uh, unmasking Harold. Um, you know, and he didn't just lie about what happened up on the mountain. He lied about his entire being. He claimed to be right. this uh, this businessman. Well, in fact, he was not. He claimed to have all this money. In fact, he did not. He claimed to be taking business trips. No, he was out casing the scene. And, you know, so she did a lot of that, a lot of that grunt work. Um, you know, there was a, a whole other subplot here involving uh, the diamond on, on Tony's mm-hmm. uh, wedding ring, you know, wedding set. Right. Uh, when she went to the, uh, went to the morgue, uh, that diamond was missing. Um and you know nobody saw it at the scene, uh, and uh, you know Harold's kind of asked about it, and you know it, it, they go back to the scene a little bit later, and there it is. You know, I mean the whole thing is just kind of weird. You know, um, and so you know investigator shot and the FBI guys, uh, you know they they they're able to to keep you know piling this this, this lie upon lie upon lie. You know, uh, no, the insurance didn't go to Haley. It went to him. No, it wasn't, you know, $400,000 insurance. It was, you know, millions of dollars in insurance. No, uh, you know, one thing after another. And, and you know, it's not sexy police work. It's not gotcha police work. But they were able to, to build this huge circumstantial case. We're talking about September 2015 and what would have been the Henthorns' 15th wedding anniversary. Uh, tell us what Sunita has, Hazra says to the jury. Uh, you mean, is this her summation or is this her... Uh, you know, yeah, basically basically yeah. what she thinks she's done in this, in this trial, in this case, what she's proven. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's She's painting the picture of kind of the ultimate betrayal um, that Tony Henthorn that morning got up and put on her makeup and put on her lipstick and and uh, you know wanted to look her best for the world and for her husband and and even though she had bad knees uh, she was game you know her husband wanted to have this romantic hike. She went on a romantic hike, even though it must have been very difficult. And, and you know, the prosecutor, this is a multi-story courthouse, and the prosecutor recalls looking out over the window and, and looking down onto the street and, and realizing just how far, how far Tony fell and how sort of the last hand that touched her was the, the hand of the man she thought she loved and thought loved her. And... What a betrayal that is. What a betrayal. That was the last touch. And that was that last touch was her husband pushing her off a cliff and and it was poignant and difficult and 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 emotional. And you know, something I don't think a male prosecutor would have would have jumped on, but you know, the prosecution to to a woman prosecutor, women prosecutors, you know, they they wore a lipstick and they know about lipstick. And and it was a small detail of all this evidence, but if Harold Hanthorne had been doing CPR on his wife, he should have been covered, covered in her lipstick, and he wasn't. And it's just one of those little, almost novelistic details that 
helped make this such a compelling story for the jury. In this, too, in, in your book, we find out, again, he might not seem like a Ted Bundy, uh, that level, but the ability of this psychopathic killer to be able to have the uh, a close relationship with the woman he murdered, her parents, and they supported him, and then inviting the, the nieces over for to his cabin for a week. He was trusted, um, and he would have attempted to do that with this other the next Tony's family as well. Incredible composure he had, and his behavior is especially despicable when you think about it. And by that yeah. time, the jury and everyone had known actually who he really was. Yeah, and it's you know monsters come in many many forms and mm-hmm. and and some monsters are born and some are made and some are born and then made and i think i think harold was a he was a monster who was born but he had some help and i think i think and i i, I know this is might seem unfair but he he probably was emboldened by the fact that he got away with lynn's allegedly got away sure lynn's death he might have been emboldened by the idea that that he was let go, not even arrested, not even not even held as a suspect, not even really questioned, certainly not interrogated at even at the police department they talked to him. You know that he may have felt I got away with it once, I can get away with it again. And and one has to wonder and and I'm certain that the investigators on that first case, who all stayed with the department, they were young cops at the time, and they all became supervisors and high-ranking police. They're all still there. Same guys, Detective McMahon, all of them are still there. have to wonder if we had done a better job, if we had done a better job, would Tony be alive today? Because the fact that he was not considered a suspect, was not put under the, the microscope in that first death, might have, might have, made him even more of a monster might have made him feel invincible i got away with it once i can get away with it again at the same time he seemingly so easily got away that maybe he was careless which seemingly was in some regards the second time yeah you know what's scary about this case is that, you know, despite the fact that he couldn't keep his story straight and he was acting strange in front of a lot of people, mm-hmm. if you can put up with the heat, you can get away yeah. with murder. If you don't have witnesses, yeah. if you don't leave a trial. I mean, another jury uh, may have acquitted. Um, mm-hmm. And keep in mind, he has still not been charged with Lynn's death. That case remains officially yeah. open, but let's face it, it's never going to happen. So the reality is, if you believe he killed Lynn, as the prosecution clearly did, he he did get away with one of them right now, sure. despite everything we're saying. Uh, so if you can put up with it, and if he had just not been such a big mouth, if he had not let his, 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 his ego and his hubris get in the way, you know, he might be sitting at home right now with Haley. It seemed like, too, that for a smart guy, he didn't do his, all the research he needed, not to give anybody advice or inspiration with this, but he didn't seem to do all the research. 
No, and, right and you know, beginning. here's and here's where the first case comes into play. This was Douglas County Sheriff's Department. You know, very competent sheriff's department. But these, you know, these investigators, these are kids in their twenties. You know, McMahon. Yeah. This was first first death investigation. Okay. Sure. They did the best they could. Arguably, made a lot of mistakes, but they were they were not they were not uh, great great cops. They were not experienced. Um, second time around, he's dealing with the FBI. Okay, he's dealing with the federal government and all of its resources. He's dealing at a time when there's electronic communication, electronic evidence, um, GPS, I mean, uh, cell phone evidence. And uh, he thought he was perhaps uh, thought he was dealing with uh, Douglas County again. And now he's up against the FBI. And it was a whole different ballgame. Interestingly, you say that because he said as much in that, if it was, you can tell us what he actually said, but he said it was 50 yards difference. Yeah. Yeah, if he had been just, uh, you know, if he had, if this had happened in Estes Park or somewhere else, not in the confines of Rocky Mountain National Park, it would not be literally a federal case. It would have been a local case. Now, it's who knows uh, if, if the local cops would have done, uh, you know, as good a job, but... Clearly, he underestimated what he was up against. Yeah. It's a, a fascinating story for those people that will pick up the book. It's incredible, the Christian Mingle profile. Um, you talk about it in the beginning. It was so over the top. I've never read anything so customized to sound like a, the most wonderful yeah. man in the world. You know, it, a lot it's, of this is sort of, it's all about 2020 hindsight, you know, and, and yeah. when you're looking for love, you overlook things, right? When you're looking to love somebody, you're, you, you overlook things. When you want your daughter to yeah. be happy, you overlook things. And this is a whole case about a bunch of people who overlook things and, and now look back and said, Oh my God, what, what did I do? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible tale. Thank you very much, Michael uh, Fleeman for coming on and talking about the black widower. For those that might want to look at other work, uh, do you have a website or a Facebook page? Yeah, just page go on michaelfleeman.com. Um, or if you go on Amazon, put in my last name, F L E E M A N. I'm the only one. Uh, and you'll find my author page. You can buy um, any of my books uh, on Amazon um, and uh, or go on my website. Or you can go on wildbluepress.com, uh, is another website that uh, you can buy a book. Sounds great. I want to thank you very much, Michael. You have a great evening. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. Good night.